taking a drug that would affect his behavior. behavior. The medium dose received by Private Cannon made him careless, but he worked with Sergeant Paul to maintain the situation map so that it reflected information from incoming messages. I want to do the science, but the politics is in the way, so I need to pivot and study the politics. Glad to see everybody here is enjoying themselves. Don't think I haven't noticed all the drinking that's been going on. If you would be a poet, experiment with all manners of poetics, erotic, broken grammars, ecstatic religions, heathen outpourings speaking in tongues, bombast public speech, automatic scribblings, surrealist sensing, streams of consciousness, found sounds, rants and raves, to create your own limbic, your own underlying voice, your er voice. In the February 1940 issue of Reader's Digest, gossip columnist and general sleazebag Walter Winchell published his apparently favorite joke. An American was being shown a big Soviet sign factory. We turn out about 500 signs a week, said the Russian proudly, and when business demands it, we can step it up to 2,000. Amazing, said the visitor. By the way, what do the signs say? Elevators not running was the answer. I get it, because despite succeeding in the fastest industrial, agricultural, infrastructural, educational, and economic development in the history of the world, the Soviet Union was believed by many in the US to be a poor backwards hick town of a country, full of starving alcoholics and bereft of even the most basic of modern amenities. Obviously, this joke about broken elevators rings a little false when you know that that stereotype wasn't the case. It also really doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Against its own internal logic, a country has no working elevators, but has a factory that can make signs for those elevators? A factory which is nimble and flexible enough to increase production when necessary? Wouldn't they just make more of whatever part is broken on the elevators? The answer is that they would, of course, but why ruin a good joke by thinking about it? But I have been thinking about this joke. I know it's sort of trite to use old jokes as metaphors. I mean, what is this, season one? But what about this? How would we change the joke to reflect the U.S. today? A Soviet citizen was being shown a big sign factory in the United States. We turn out about 500 signs a week, said the American proudly. And when our boss demands it, we can step it up to 2,000 with unpaid overtime. Amazing, said the visitor. By the way, what do the signs say? U.S. military installation. Trespassers will be shot. We do them in 500 languages. 
what worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future is going to be the collapse of empire or the rise of the zombies or something that wipes us all out. Superman's gonna live forever. Superman will go as far as I'm concerned, that they saved my life. Grim, totalitarian police state in Britain of the unreachably far future, like 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol or with Mick Inside or any of the pop artists because they said they took our imagery and we got paid page rate. Here's the big one, the one we've all been waiting for. In March of 1963, Marvel published a comic called Tales of Suspense, number 39. On its cover looms a gray behemoth, a metal monstrosity with slitted features where its eyes should be. To the side, three panels show the assembling of the iron bodysuit, the boots, the chest plate, the gauntlets, each with a single, repeated question. Who? But you know who. You know all too well who. The first appearance of Iron Man might just be the most well-known story of all of our regular Avengers slash Ultimates lineup. The 2008 movie that kicked off the Marvel Cinematic Universe updated the bad guys, but the song remained the same. Brilliant capitalist inventor Tony Stark gets kidnapped by the enemy du jour and is forced to build weapons for them in a secluded location somewhere. The clock is ticking for him because the trap that captured him also left a deadly piece of shrapnel in his chest that without emergency intervention will worm its way to his heart, ending his life painfully. Rather than supervising his work, his wardens opt for a more hands-off approach. This baffling level of independence allows Stark to pull one over on his captors and create his now famous suit of armor. Stark uses the armor and the weapons he built into it to escape wherever he's being held and make his way back to the United States. In the 2008 movie, Tony Stark was kidnapped by radical Middle Eastern terrorists, very chic for the time, and definitely just as relevant to the Ultimates as the first draft from the 60s is. In the original, though, Stark isn't captured by nebulously Middle Eastern terrorists. He's captured by nebulously Asian terrorists. The issue opens on a building described as being located somewhere in the U.S. defense perimeter, which could really mean anywhere because we have a thousand bases around the world. There, Tony Stark is showing some military brass, some miniature transistors he's created that will make U.S. artillery more mobile. And I can't tell you how many takes I had to do because I kept pronouncing it artillery. Anyway, the next page takes two panels to show Stark living it up as a Playboy industrialist before using the remaining four panels to really get the racism going. The panels show a horrendously drawn, gigantic Asian man described as Wong Chu, the Red Gorilla Tyrant. He's standing in front of a bunch of villagers he's conquered and telling them that if one of them can beat him in wrestling, he'll free the village. And listen, I don't have the time nor the wherewithal to go into how ahistorical this is, 
But if you want more info, you can check out the bonus one-off episode from last season concerning Avengers number 18, an even more atrociously racist book. It's available through the Patreon. I've already described the story of Tony being captured and making his Iron Man suit under his tormentor's noses. So instead, let's focus on the strange inconsistencies in this book. First of all, the Red Gorillas throw an old Chinese physics professor into the clink with Tony, who then becomes Tony's assistant. His name is Yin Sun, and he is now apparently Wang Chu's manservant? Why? What happened? What in the world is an aged Chinese nationalist doing deep in the Vietnamese jungles in the first place? He tells Tony that he resisted the Reds and was taken prisoner by Wang Chu. Where? How? What? Yin Sun eventually sacrifices himself so that Tony may escape, and once Tony does, Wang Chu announces a bounty on him. But it's to be paid in yen! The Chinese didn't send troops to Vietnam until 1965, so why in 1963 is an apparently Chinese general conquering Vietnam and paying soldiers with the currency of Japan? Where was it last time, Manila? Oh, kindly, you forgot! This whole thing reeks of pure ignorance, no self-interrogation or even the stirrings of critical thinking. It revels in an even more simplistic understanding of an already black-and-white war. And I mean black and white as in the U.S. should not have been there, period. But not according to Stan Lee, I guess. Iron Man liberates the camp before the soldiers can carry out Wong Chu's orders to execute all the prisoners. And this is another gross distortion of history. In Vietnam, as in Cuba and as in the USSR, the Communist Party did not execute political prisoners willy-nilly. In fact, in all three cases, the party had to step in and prevent ordinary citizens who'd been oppressed by the capitalist or imperialist states for years from carrying out extrajudicial executions themselves. The prisoners were given trials and usually either exiled or rehabilitated. And remember, these were opposing soldiers or capitalist collaborators, not regular civilians as this comic would have us believe. Anyway, you know the rest. Iron Man makes it home and becomes a superhero, fighting numerous Asian stereotypes in his long and illustrious career. I know I give Batman a lot of shit, but really, he's nothing compared to Iron Man. In my eyes, only one of them is beyond redemption, and he doesn't wear a cape. Ultimate Iron Man is also the only one of our Ultimates to get a radically altered origin story, although it wasn't actually written until several years after this comic. It's written by Orson Scott Card of Ender's Game Notoriety, and it's fucking terrible. It's so terrible that Mark Miller, <laughs> not known for making good decisions about bad comics, actually retconned it, meaning that he wrote another story after it that contradicted and nullified it. It did not happen. Tony's future father, Howard, is working on some sort of bacterial living armor that protects the wearer from almost all blunt force trauma. The only problem is that it eats the skin of whoever wears it, because it has to be applied directly. For this reason, Howard Stark hires a beautiful and genius bioengineer to create a kind of gene therapy that can give people regenerative healing capabilities, I guess so that their skin will constantly grow back while being eaten by the armor. Are you with me so far? 
The two fall in love, and Tony's ex-wife marries his biggest competitor while attempting to take the company and all the patents in the divorce. Aren't women just terrible? There's a very contrived accident in Tony's mom's lab one day, and the blood from a monkey she was doing her regenerative gene experiments on gets in her mouth. She then finds out she's pregnant. Through some absolutely absurd biotechno babble, it's established that baby Tony's body will be entirely brain, so they have to cover him in the living armor. Him all brain. All brain the Tony. He'll also constantly be in pain for his whole life. So, Tony Big Brain am smart, but hurt forever, and that's why he discovers drinking at a really young age. Also, uh, at one point he tells his black friend that black people like fried chicken and watermelon, which gets him a smile and a noogie. I mean, it's bad. It's real bad. But hey, that's the ultimate universe for you. Let's talk about something in this book that I haven't brought up before. The ads. I've been reading the collected edition of The Ultimates, which doesn't have any. But I finally got my hands on the actual floppy copies of the first 13 issues, and a whole new world has opened up to me. On a fun note, I'm actually going to be giving each of these issues away with a handwritten note detailing my least favorite thing about each one. I was going to make it a Patreon thing, but I was told not to because it's highly illegal since it counts as interstate gambling. So the drawing is open to whoever wants to participate. All you have to do is tweet or post on Instagram a review of the podcast with the hashtag America is actually the bad guy, and I'll put your name in the hat. For an extra chance to win one, you can also leave an Apple podcast review or give it five stars on Spotify or whatever podcast app you use. Just send me a screenshot of whatever you do. I'll draw the names right before the season finale comes out, so don't worry, you have time to craft the perfect review. If you mention your favorite episode in the review and your name is drawn, I'll do my best to make sure you actually get that issue. Okay, so let's actually get started. As we'll see, it's very fitting that inside the cover of issue 9, is an anti-drug ad paid for by the Office of National Drug Control Policy, a department created in 1988 and actually instigated in 1989. By law, the office must oppose any attempt at legalization and is given power, budget, and indeed an obligation to do so. You'll understand why this is so funny in a bit. The story opens right where the last one left off. We're outside a bar called the Red Lion Pub somewhere in downtown Chicago, and as apparently only the Ultimates can claim, shit's about to get real. I say real, but it's really not. Steve Rogers, Captain America, has placed his hand on the shoulder of fugitive Hank Pym, giant man, who's on the run for nearly beating to death his wife, their colleague, Janet Pym, also known as the Wasp in her superhero role. He hasn't better hurt Mr. America's hands. I got used for him. Oh, sure, boss. Rogers leans in close and asks Pim if he's watching anything interesting on the bar's television. At that exact moment, the newscaster on the TV describes exactly what Pim is suspected of doing and states that authorities are still looking for him. Rogers says that that's what they might call a cosmic coincidence. Now... In the world of script writing, there's a concept called lampshading or lampshade hanging. The wonderful website TV Tropes describes it thus, quote, lampshade hanging or more informally lampshading 
is the writer's trick of dealing with any element of the story that threatens the audience's willing suspension of disbelief, whether a very implausible plot development or a particularly blatant use of a trope, by calling attention to it and simply moving on. The entry on lampshading goes on to explain that writers do this to acknowledge how unlikely the events of their story are. Usually, it's done coyly and with a hint of self-deprecation. But I sense none of that here. I know I'm a little biased, but truly, this isn't a clever moment of shared recognition of the building blocks of a story. It's just there to make the job easier for Mark Miller and to make Captain America look cool while he delivers the line in a close-up. Now that the exposition has been so handily provided by the talking head on television, Steve is free to begin administering punishment as he sees fit. He forces Hank Pym out into the back alley and makes it clear why he's there. Before Steve can hit him again, Pym pleads for mercy and states that he's been taking antidepressants. This goes unheeded by Steve, who open palms Pym across the jaw and cajoles him into changing size so that Steve can have, quote, something to hit. When he realizes that Steve won't be talked down, Hank Pym obliges. Thus, a plain-clothed Captain America and a no-clothed 59-foot-tall giant man burst through the wall into the Red Lion pub on the next page. Let's break off here and talk about something that's been gnawing at me since the obscenely well-timed news broadcast. In the story, the anchor person claimed that Hank Pym has a known history of violent relationships and an addiction to prescription painkillers. I am, of course, not here to defend an abuser by giving any credence to their claim that drugs made them violent or uninhibited. I am here to talk about a larger and even more troubling trend of drug abuse in the military that's going to lead us down some strange paths, some cynical, many scary, all very concerning. In April of 2018, U.S. Navy SEALs from SEAL Team 10 were commanded to report for urinalysis in Little Creek, Virginia. Six of them failed and were detained for using cocaine and other banned substances, according to an article from the Navy Times. By all accounts, the SEALs assumed they would never get caught. Quote, I never once got piss-tested on deployment or on the road where I was using most often, end quote, said one of them. They referred to the infrequently mandated military drug tests as jokes. Usually, when tests would come up, SEALs who'd been using would simply swap their urine with clean samples and submit those. No oversight, no questions. In 2017, Navy Captain Jamie Sands described the amount of substance abuse in the ranks as staggering. One SEAL, under condition of anonymity, said, quote, People that we know of, that we hear about, have tested positive for cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, 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 marijuana, and ecstasy. And remember that last one, because we're going to come back to it later in the episode. The problem is so prevalent that another anonymous SEAL described whistleblowing on drug use as a career killer, because those who rat on their fellow SEALs face blackballing or ostracization. In response to this, other drug-related scandals, and an entire host of alarming war crimes allegations, Army General Raymond A. Thomas III 
issued a memo in November of 2018 in which he admonished the military's special forces to, quote, operate with the highest standards of ethics and honor, end quote. He later stated in the memo, quote, we routinely operate around the world in environments where exposure and temptations to be influenced by local norms are a reality. What the fuck does that mean, General? It sure sounds like he's trying to write off the drug-dealing warlords that the U.S. Special Forces regularly deal with as being local norms, which, to me, sounds racist as hell. Not only is this calculated to be a dismissive dog whistle, its implication that Special Forces members only do drugs to fit in overseas is also simply incorrect. From another section of the Navy Times article, quote, one SEAL confessed he had used cocaine while cleaning his gear at his house, according to the investigation. Another SEAL, who admitted to snorting coke in Colombia, also recalled years of drug abuse in the United States. He told investigators that he partied with five service members from SEAL Team 10 during a stint at sniper school in September of 2017, and also abused drugs during training for armorers in Indiana. Back home in Virginia Beach, he'd mix cocaine into an orange crush drink while hanging out at The Shack, a local bar popular with SEALs, according to the report." End quote. This is a problem with unknowable depths. There is simply no way for any one person to be aware of every single instance of drug abuse in the military. There are two reasons for this. The first is that it's been a problem for at least 50 years. And the second is that Far from simply being drug users, U.S. military personnel and U.S. intelligence agencies are also drug dealers. Here's a brief strain of what happened in only one part of the world in a nutshell. Because of the world recession of the 70s that caused a massive spike in oil prices, Oil-rich countries could invest their recent windfall into international banks, which would then supply huge loans with even larger interest rates to developing countries in Latin America that were struggling to afford petroleum imports. Interest rates continued to increase, and the exchange rate with the dollar of many Latin American countries' currencies fell. All hell broke loose when Mexico defaulted on a loan in August of 1982. Commercial banks immediately halted or reduced new lending to Latin America, and many of those countries' debts were called in, due immediately. This is how the International Monetary Fund trapped much of Latin America into structural adjustment programs that we've talked about before, predatory loans that poor countries take from rich countries that they can never hope to pay off. Before engaging with the IMF, however, Bolivia took it upon itself in 1985 to hyper-liberalize its economy to fight off massive inflation. It privatized its state-owned natural gas industry, which caused natural gas prices to plummet, impoverishing a huge percentage of its workforce. These workers had to make money somehow, and between 1980 and 1985, the number of coca growers in Bolivia tripled, according to Alfred McCoy's seminal work, The Politics of Heroin. And yeah, I know coca makes cocaine and not heroin, but give me this one. In the 90s, the U.S. instigated a plan to destroy all of Bolivia's coca crops. It failed, of course. But this had the effect of spooking Colombian cartels, who then immediately increased their output of coca at home. And what does this matter? 
because the United States cares about the international drug trade only for the ways that U.S. industry and capital can profit from it. At home, this came under the guise of Clinton's 1994 Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, which greatly increased the budgets of law enforcement agencies so that they could crack down on drug users, notably people of color, and throw them in for-profit prisons. America's values. Head Start, student loans, toxic cleanup, extra police, 100,000 new police. President Clinton delivered. 100,000 new police because President Clinton delivered. President Clinton increased Border Patrol's 40% to catch illegal immigrants. Extra police, anti-drug programs. 100,000 police to patrol our streets. Just a side note that Joe Biden, hero to the ostensibly moral and justice-oriented liberal voters everywhere, was a major contributor to that 1994 crime bill because he doesn't give two shits about people of color and only wants to make his corporate benefactors happy. Don't forget that the CIA orchestrated the transfer of cocaine from Central America into the United States, introduced that cocaine in the form of crack into urban areas with large populations of people of color, and then used the profits from that to fund the anti-communist Contra forces in Nicaragua who were fighting against a group of rebels who only wanted to feed and house and educate people. We can also see that the U.S. doesn't care about stopping the drug trade because they've used the chaos it causes to put down civil wars in Latin America. Isn't it just a little weird how suddenly Colombia, a country that was in the middle of a civil war with a Marxist-Leninist revolutionary group, was then producing almost exactly the same amount of coca that was culled from Bolivia and Peru? And isn't it just a little weird how, as Alfred McCoy puts it, quote, By early 2002, the administration of President George W. Bush began pressing Congress to lift restriction on Clinton's Plan Colombia to allow a shift, as U.S. Senator Patrick Leahy put it, from counter-narcotics to counter-insurgency. Now, I don't have any sources to back up my supposition on this Colombia thing, so don't quote me, but it's just an interesting question to ask. Also interesting is how, in 2018, an article was published by the military news site Task and Purpose titled, that Army Special Forces soldier busted for drug smuggling may be part of a larger ring. It describes the efforts of one particular soldier to smuggle 90 pounds of cocaine from Colombia to Florida and relates investigators' attempts to link this instance with similar ones prior to it. We should be questioning, too, perhaps more relevant to this comic and more damning to the various administrations to come, the suspicious timing of opium production being halted in Afghanistan in 2000. What have you been doing lately? Why did it suddenly shoot back up again after the U.S. invasion? What do you think I've been doing? And now that the U.S. no longer runs that country, why has it dwindled once more? With even this brief, brief introduction we can see an unimaginably intertwined relationship between U.S. armed forces and intelligence agencies and illicit substances. It would make sense, then, that Hank Pym would have a history with narcotics and possibly other drugs. Although I'm fairly certain Mark Miller wasn't trying to use this as a sly expose on such matters. More likely, he was just being edgy, and he made it so that this bad man did drugs because, in polite society, that's what bad men do. 
the fully nude, giant-sized Hank Pym bends forward to keep an eye on Captain America, who's running up to the pub's second story. And I have to commend Miller for having the good taste, the decency, the abject mercy to have set this fight in an alley with only an abandoned building staring down the barrel of Hank's butthole. Which, since Hank is now 10.42 times the size of the average American male, I've regretfully determined is a butthole that's probably just under 16 and a half inches deep. Sorry. Anyway, Pym taunts Captain America, who then launches himself at the prostrate Pym from an upper window, grabbing Pym's face and yanking him into a construction site across the alley. It's nighttime, so there's no one there. Again, thankfully. The two duke it out for a while in what could probably have been a pretty cool fight scene if every single panel didn't look like it's been clipped or cropped in some way. The one consistency from panel to panel is that, no matter how prominent or distant he is, Captain America is the only object in each who isn't cropped by a gutter, and that's the line that separates comics panels. He's fully in every frame except for one close-up. He's leaping up a sheer girder or backflipping over an excavator. He's dodging a lamppost that Pym is wielding as a club. He's climbing up Pym's naked body. He's split-kicking Pym's stubbly jaw and somersaulting to safety as Pym falls. All of these actions are objectively cool, but the things that Captain America is responding to are all so difficult to parse because they're all mostly out of frame so that we focus on him. Pym snarls at Captain America and accuses him of meddling in his relationship with Janet. Making good use of his surroundings, Cap takes Pym down by dropping a load of huge metal pipes onto Pym's exposed back, most likely crippling him for now at least. Literally just as soon as this happens, the S.H.I.E.L.D. team that had tracked Captain America's location that we saw at the end of the last issue shows up to stop him from engaging Pym. Whoops. As he walks away, Cap asks Pym, how big do you feel now, dirtbag? How big do you feel now? And that's actually sorta cool. It's rad to see a wife beater get got. It just sucks that we have to see it done through vigilante rather than systemic justice. On the next page, we're back at the Triskelion, Shield's floating amphibious headquarters. It's a condition red, and everything is being scrambled. Helicopters, fighter jets, everything. I can't imagine how much greenhouse gas is being thrown into the atmosphere by this one maneuver alone. The U.S. military is, after all, the largest per capita polluter in the world and is on track to just actually be the largest polluter in the world. In fact, according to an article in The Conversation, the U.S. military emits more greenhouse gas than 140 countries combined. If you want to have a real conversation about national security, it has to start with dismantling the military. Otherwise, we're all in for a world of hurt. Oh well, at least none of our elevators are broken, I guess. Anyway, while troops are being marshaled topside, we cut to deep inside the Triskelion, where Bruce Banner is being held for turning himself into the Hulk and trashing Manhattan so that the Ultimates could take him down for image management purposes. Banner is talking to his separated wife, Betty, S.H.I.E.L.D.'s head of public relations. She's been filling him in on some of the latest developments, particularly in the case of Hank Pym. If you'll recall from previously in the story, Bruce Banner was demoted to second in command of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s research efforts under Pym. 
While appearing to accept this initially, once it was implemented practice, Banner immediately began to resent his new position and his new boss. This is why, when Betty tells Bruce about Captain America's recent pummeling of Pym, Bruce responds with, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. And, you know, it's totally unclear how the immediate timeline of this story works, because they're all supposed to be panicking over the revelations of the Chitauri base in Micronesia, but Betty is here calmly shooting the breeze with Bruce over whatever bullshit. I mean, the discovery of the base was why they sent S.H.I.E.L.D. personnel to retrieve Captain America literally as soon as they located him in Chicago. How long has Betty been here? When did she hear about the scuffle between Steve and Hank? What the hell is going on? Betty literally says to Bruce that the primary team needs every pair of hands they can get right now. So why isn't she up there working with Theory to concoct a spin on this mass mobilization? She also tells Bruce that Fury isn't happy losing Pym, and it's clear that she means Fury considers Pym lost not because he beat his wife and teammate nearly to death, but because Captain America beat him up and put him out of commission. Bruce even says, quote, I kind of hoped they'd draw the line at wife beaters, Betty, end quote. But why should he expect that? Per a Government Accountability Office report from 2021, the Department of Defense recorded more than 40,000 domestic abuse incidents involving military service members between 2015 and 2019. 40,000! That's 10,000 a year. And of those, 74% were physical abuse. And that's just the ones they recorded. The report euphemistically states that one of the gaps in the efforts to combat this is data collection and reporting. But why should we be surprised? This is the same organization that regularly and scandalously lies to young kids to get them to join it. guilty. Even pro-military outlets have articles about the problem. For instance, a list of lies told by recruiters that was published by The Soldiers Project includes the following. 1. You can quit any time. This isn't true. You're signed on to an eight-year contract you're expected to honor. Two, you don't have to deploy. Recruiters will literally tell you that you won't have to move away or go overseas. But they're the fucking military. Whatever they tell you to do, you have to do. Otherwise, it's insubordination, which is a crime. That's the whole point of that type of organizational structure. Lie number three is a big one. The military will pay for your college. That's right, the one that people like to use as a go-to justification for defending people's choice to join the military is a lie. To quote the article, quote, This is an overused ploy that unfortunately many recruits still fall for. The military will pay for your college, but there are caveats. You will have to pay $100 a month for the first 12 months just to qualify for the Montgomery GI Bill that goes into paying for your college. Then you will have to commit a certain time in service before you qualify for the post-9-11 GI Bill that also goes into paying for your college. For other programs, such as tuition assistance, you will have to pay back any amount you receive if your grades are below specific standards, end quote. The military does not just pay for college. It does not grant free education. And even if it did, the lives of the people U.S. soldiers are sent to end 
are not worth someone getting a shitty, like, bachelor's of business administration. Now would be a very prudent time for a career change. Well, this leads us to our last lie. You will get free housing, health care, and food. This continues the myth that the military will economically support you. We touched on this in episode 3. It's true that the military was, at one time, a robust welfare system. But that isn't the case anymore, specifically due to the efforts of people in the Bush administration, particularly Donald Rumsfeld. Because of the very concerning lack of data on domestic abuse rates in the military, it's hard to determine whether the trend is going up or down. But buried deep in the GAO report, I found this. The average number of military domestic violence survivors who reported abuse for the first time has risen from 2010 to 2019. Why might this be? Could it have anything to do with the previously mentioned destruction of economic safety nets for service members? We know there's a direct relationship between economic insecurity and domestic violence, so I wouldn't bet against it. The military does not care what kind of person they enlist. They don't care that they take people and turn them into killers, per another Task and Purpose article from just a few days ago, June 11, 2023, Quote, military service is the single strongest individual-level predictor if someone will carry out or plan to carry out a mass casualty event, end quote, according to the University of Maryland's National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism. Not only this, but people with military backgrounds were, of course, more likely to succeed in their planned mass shooting. The U.S. military takes vulnerable people turns them into raging violent psychopaths if they aren't already, and then spits them out without any sort of economic or social support if they don't die in combat. It makes sense that Hank Pym, an egotistical scientist tasked with literally transforming military service members into ultimate killing machines, would take that violence home. But it's never investigated as a systemically created phenomenon. It's just because Hank Pym is a bad individual and there's nothing more to it. Betty calls Bruce out on the obvious hypocrisy of his condemning S.H.I.E.L.D. for not firing Hank. Bruce tells her that at least he's trying to cure himself. He thanks Betty for some DVDs that she brought him, and it's not at all clear which DVDs he means, but since he says, quote, I haven't actually seen a couple of these, I think it's safe to assume that he means DVDs containing footage of him destroying Manhattan as the Hulk. I have no idea why he'd want to see those. They then move the conversation to more current events. Bruce asks Betty to fill him in a little more on the E.T. thing. He says that he's heard that multiple divisions of S.H.I.E.L.D. are working around the clock to tackle whatever is going on. Betty tells him that the information coming out about the Chitauri invaders is unbelievable. Real War of the World stuff, she says. I think it's here that Mark Miller is having a little fun. I think he's taking the piss, as he might say, out of the things that so-called conspiracy theorists might believe in. He has Betty rattle off a bunch of supposed or potential plots by the Chitauri, including sabotaging nuclear facilities. Normal. Poisoning our nervous systems with artificial sweetener. Not normal, but also a real conspiracy theory. Microchipping kids, again not normal, but I guess Elon Musk actually wants to do that? And finally, 
that they've placed agents in influential positions in the media and are behind, quote, all these paranoid scare stories about the dangers your children are supposed to be in, end quote. Obviously, apart from the aliens, this one is not a conspiracy theory. It's literally just the symbiotic relation between the media and the state war machine. To put it in terms germane to the episode, think about it like this. If the capital class is going to maintain a global empire that dominates and destroys whole civilizations just so they can sell us tasteless food and manufacture a bunch of cars that none of us are ever going to drive, they have to trick us, the public, into thinking that this is necessary and normal. So how do they do it? They scare us. I cannot tell you everything that we know, but what I can share with you when combined with what all of us have learned over the years is deeply troubling. Indeed, the facts and Iraq's behavior show that Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. Mass destruction. Mass destruction. Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi, the communists writ large. All of these are just boogeymen that are going to come take your children and, I don't know, give them health care? Iraq, Libya, and the USSR have all at one point or another had universal health care. The US does not. It's all well and good for Miller to poke fun at, you know, mind control soda. But to compare that to the very real, material actions that Eurocentric media takes to whip up fear and sensational fervor is to demonstrate a deep, deep ignorance. Banner expresses his surprise that all of this has come to pass, and particularly how it seems to have ramped up so suddenly. Last he heard, there were, quote, maybe 50 or 60 of them working with the Nazis. Where did all the others come from? Betty smiles a grotesque smile that only Brian Hitch can manage to draw and get away with, and tells Bruce, in so many words, that the Chitauri have just been fucking a lot. Cut to another area in S.H.I.E.L.D.'s headquarters, the Iron Tech launch pad. It's apparently 90 minutes before the mission is scheduled to start. We get a full-page close-up of the empty Iron Man suit standing on a platform looking down on the activity of the lower decks. Elsewhere, Tony Stark and Natasha Romanoff, the Black Widow we met last issue, are chatting while prepping for their trip to Micronesia. Tony asks Natasha what she thinks their chances are of survival and whether or not she thinks he'll still be able to hold the tequila he's currently drinking if they do make it back. She tells him she doesn't have enough experience with extraterrestrials to make an educated guess. She then asks him if he's ever done anything this dangerous before. He glibly remarks that he once ballooned over the Atlantic, but that he's almost embarrassed to make the comparison. Then maybe you should have just shut the hell up, Tony. He especially should have shut the hell up instead of saying the next thing he says. He tells Natasha, quote, I must have gone to pee at least a dozen times in the last half hour. I haven't been this nervous since I sat next to Elton John in a steam room. We know from previous episodes that Miller sure loves his gay jokes. We will see in a future episode that this one is by no means the worst in the comic. Those of you who have read the final issue surely know what I mean. But there's an artifact from Miller's history of homophobia that feels particularly relevant to this season. 
1993, Miller was working on the British sci-fi comic strip 2000 AD. He produced a story starring a character named Big Dave, who called himself the hardest man in Manchester. And he was a jacked-up badass who was sent on a mission for Her Majesty to the Persian Gulf to stop Saddam Hussein, sound familiar, who, with the help of aliens, sound familiar, was using a love gun to turn British soldiers gay. I'm not kidding. This actually happened. Big Dave is hit with the gun, but it turns out that he's too manly to be affected by it. As comics writer and critic Elizabeth Sandifer puts it, Big Dave, after realizing that he's immune to the gay ray, responds by, quote, decking Hussein for calling him a poof, overthrowing his regime, and getting hailed by the Iraqis as a bold liberator, end quote. In yet another similarity, it should come as no surprise that that Big Dave strip was quite polarizing at the time. There were readers who believed it to be an incisive takedown of British tabloid culture. And then there were the correct readers who understood that it was merely transgressive bombast. You know, a new phrase for this that I heard recently, that I really like, is that Mark Miller is a pizza cutter. All edge and no point. Really, Miller just loves throwing current events and players from the world stage in his bloody story blender, seasoning it with a pinch of abuse directed at whatever group is the joke of the day, and processing it down into tasteless pop culture slurry. Apply liberally. What even is Tony trying to say here? That he's afraid of gay men? That he thinks Elton John specifically is a predator? That he believes he's simply too attractive for people to resist? That he himself might be gay and he loves Elton John so much that he was afraid he might not be able to control himself? There's nothing deeper here than haha gay is funny, but at this point, can we really expect anything else? Natasha tells Tony that having a healthy respect for death is a good thing. She points out to him that Hawkeye calls his girlfriend and says goodbye to his children before every mission, because each mission might be his last. Tony dismisses this, whatever. The two chat for a little bit longer, and it's frankly inconsequential. Natasha complains about the waiting, claiming that you would never see James Bond standing around while the equipment was being double-checked. Tony mentions that Stark International's stock goes down every time someone gets a picture of him in the suit. And that rocks, I like that. Thank you, Mark. Then Natasha asks Tony if it's a good idea to be drinking so heavily before flying the Iron Man suit. Tony tells her it's essential. He asks who in their right mind is going to climb into it sober. For those of you who don't know, this is a callback to a very old and very influential Iron Man story called Demon in a Bottle. The nine-issue arc ran from the Invincible Iron Man number 120 to number 128 in 1979. In it, Tony begins to drink more heavily than usual and eventually has to admit that his drinking has become a problem. He ends the story by conquering his alcoholism, although it comes up again later, apparently. This is why he drinks so much in the movies. This is why he drinks here. That story defined and made explicit Tony Stark's relationship with alcohol. It would make sense that Miller would continue this characterization, despite being given a clean slate in an entirely new universe to work with. Miller loves foibles. They justify his maladaptive use of characters. Miller also loves carte blanche and free reign. We can therefore conclude the axiom, Mark Miller wants change, but not growth.
Let's think about the fact that Ultimate Tony Stark won't get into his super-powered armor sober. Far from being a simple, pleasurable distraction, alcohol is now explicitly a necessary factor in Iron Man's contributions to the U.S. war engine. Do you think that if the U.S. government could come up with a drug that would make U.S. soldiers more effective on the battlefield, they would? Do you think they'd spend millions of dollars on research and marketing to make sure this was practical and acceptable? If you said yes, you'd be right, because the government has done that very thing. We talked about how soldiers use drugs. Well, now let's talk about how the military uses drugs. We don't need to go into too much background detail here, since most of you are probably already familiar. But in 1975, the United States Senate Select Committee to Study Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities, more commonly and easily known as the Church Committee, partially investigated and only selectively exposed the U.S. government's clandestine experiments with, frankly, mind control drugs. You've heard of this part. It was called MKUltra. It was revealed that the Central Intelligence Agency had spent years attempting to formulate and perfect a combination of torture and forced drugging that would result in the complete erasure of a victim's identity, effectively rendering them defenseless against suggestion, otherwise known as mind control. The goals for this were the facilitation of interrogation and the establishment of a veritable army of on-command assassins, people who couldn't refuse to answer questions and people who couldn't refuse an order. This was a deliberate continuation of Nazi and World War II-era Japanese research. And they didn't just continue the work. The CIA literally extracted and protected the Nazi scientists who had begun the experiments and brought them to the United States and paid them handsome salaries to keep going. The primary focus of MKUltra drug-wise was LSD, colloquially known as acid, but there were plenty of other drugs involved as well. It's still debatable how successful this project was, or possibly is. Hundreds of books worth of Twitter threads have been dedicated to its exposure. Can the capital class, through US intelligence agencies, mind-wipe people and turn them into killing machines? Maybe. But what if it didn't have to? Remember when one of the busted Navy SEALs from earlier in the episode rattled off all the drugs he knew other SEALs were doing? The last one he mentioned was ecstasy. Point of order here, for the next section, I'm going to draw heavily from a series of articles from Truthdig by Russell Hausfeld titled The Ecstasy of Agony. Ecstasy, or MDMA, was initially created by Merck Pharmaceuticals in 1912 and was tested as a chemical warfare agent on animals by the U.S. government in 1953. In 1976, it was rediscovered by psychedelic chemist Sasha Shulgin near, of course, California's Bay Area. It was an immediate hit in his tight-knit psychotherapy circle, and one of the therapists he sent it to went on a countrywide tour proselytizing its use to other therapists. MDMA reduces fear response in those who take it, potentially making it an excellent tool for the treatment of conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder, since the very nature of PTSD makes it nearly impossible to overcome. Patients are too often crippled by the anxiety and terror that arise when attempting to interrogate triggering memories. MDMA suppresses that response. There's a mystique 
to the use of psychoactive drugs in therapy. There's a romance to the notion of expanding the human mind and connecting with something beyond ourselves. And that's propelled by the fact that these kinds of substances are often taboo in Eurocentric societies, so engaging with them has a sort of self-actualizing edge. But we can put all of that aside for now because it's not super relevant. The truth remains that psychotherapy in any form attempts to paper over underlying societal problems with individual responses to those problems. Now, this is not to say that therapy doesn't work or doesn't make people feel better. If it didn't, the US wouldn't do what we're about to learn it does. And it's not to say that therapy would be unnecessary in a communist society. That would be a ridiculous claim and it's not the one I'm making. I'm simply saying that much of what US Americans go to therapy for these days is merely symptomatic of the larger ills that capitalism causes and preys upon. So much of our stress and anxiety could be diminished with stable housing, universal healthcare, proper communal spaces, and the spiritual and psychological fulfillment that comes from not being alienated from one's labor. That's all well and good, but what does any of this have to do with the military? First, we have to talk about research and funding. In 1986, after a series of disappointing publicity and grant acquisition ventures, a psychedelics proponent named Rick Doblin founded a nonprofit organization called MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Its mission was to normalize the use of psychedelic pharmaceuticals through FDA-approved trials and research. In interviews, Doblin has been known to show a picture of himself as a teenager sitting on his bed in front of a large poster of Marx, Angles, and Lenin. In a Vice documentary that featured him, he said, quote, I'm a draft resistor. I was prepared to go to jail instead of going to Vietnam. This makes the next part of that quote all the more surprising. But now all these years later, we're being invited into the Pentagon to talk to them about MDMA therapy for veterans. In a tactical turn that has angered many throughout his career, Doblin began focusing on a group he correctly concluded would be the most sympathetic to the largest number of people in the United States, the troops. This decision came, surprise, surprise, after 9-11. For more than 20 years, his group MAPS has been attempting to mainstream therapeutic use of psychedelics by exploiting the goodwill propaganda that the US military uses to justify their brutal occupation of other countries. With so much troop worship from country songs, sporting events, beer commercials, or even all three simultaneously, it's no wonder that Doblin would cynically zero in on service members as the face of his crusade so much of the work has already been done for him. In 2005, the German newspaper Der Spiegel wrote this, quote, The United States government has found a new way of recruiting soldiers for the Iraq war. It's offering them ecstasy. The trick is, the soldiers only get the free drugs after they have seen enough fighting to be experiencing flashbacks, recurring nightmares, and other symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. In other news, the U.S. government spends $20 billion a year on the drug war, end quote. And that's a good burn. That's a sick burn right there. Although the campaign to provide soldiers with MDMA therapy for things like PTSD has had its successes and setbacks, it's finally gaining some real steam now, ironically from conservative voices, the very same voices that, for so long, had been the most powerful detractors 
of the psychedelic movement. Some recent headlines. AOC, Crenshaw passed psychedelics amendments in bipartisan rarity. Former GOP Texas governor promotes psychedelics research for veterans at event with leading experts. Magic mushrooms for therapy? Vets help sway conservatives. Matt Gates files amendment to study psilocybin and MDMA to help military veterans. And one last one. Moral injury and the promise of MDMA-assisted therapy. Why is that last one the scariest? Moral injury is not PTSD. From the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, quote, Although the core features of moral injury overlap with symptoms and common features of PTSD, it is possible to have moral injury and not meet the criteria for PTSD. In this case, the moral injury in question is the guilt a soldier might feel after killing a civilian, or setting a town on fire, or torturing a child. Any number of things might cause a soldier to have a moral injury because U.S. soldiers do these kinds of horrible things every day, often even when they're not ordered to. So here we have it. We have now begun to mainstream a drug therapy for war criminals who feel bad about being war criminals so they can get back out there and do some more war crimining. Russell Hausfeld at Truthdig also reported in a more recent article that MAPS is advancing its campaign to have active duty soldiers treated with MDMA as opposed to just inactive veterans. The U.S. military overlooks rampant, unsanctioned drug abuse as it deals drugs internationally. To swell its ranks, it concocts and demonizes world villains to lure in the impressionable. It lies to the vulnerable. It encourages extreme violent attitudes and then dismisses or utilizes the consequences. It doses soldiers who are traumatized by the horrors they have committed with psychoactive substances that remove that guilt, allowing them to continue to serve as part of the largest, most destructive force our species has ever suffered under. The United States of America is actually the bad guy, and it's devouring even its minions because they're simply tools for the ruling class to consume and exhaust. And it does all this just so it can force international slave labor to produce more cheap shit than anyone could ever need so that a few billionaires can make even more money. And that's not a country I want anything to do with. I guess I should put a transition here. Um, speaking of not wanting to have uh, anything to do with, we cut to Steve Rogers visiting Jan Pym in the Triskelion's infirmary. Again, the timeline makes no sense. She's still quite battered looking, but she's on the mend. Steve brings her flowers and soda. He's surprised when he learns that she wants to leave the Ultimates. She says she can't go back after being so humiliated by Hank's abuse. She's planning to go do research in Germany. She speaks German because she grew up on a U.S. Army base in Germany, which probably means her family was involved in some shady anti-communist shit in the 80s. She lashes out at Steve for not understanding her reasoning and for bringing her presence like some old-timey courting ritual. He leaves at her request, and the last thing we see of Jan is her crying and holding her knees to her chest. 
Again, Mark Miller does not know how to write reasonable human beings, despite his image as being a realistic superhero writer. We're now in the hangar, or maybe garage, or whatever, and Captain America has finally shown up to the party. Cap tells Fury that he's so miserable at this point that he would be happy and able to fly to Micronesia and, quote, annihilate these things by himself. Very cool and not genocidal at all. We learn that Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch will not be accompanying the team on the mission because they're coming down with some sort of chest infection. And this is just a setup for Tony to make a joke about Wanda's chest. And I'm so tired. I'm so tired of this comic. It's so bad. It makes me feel icky just reading it. I can't imagine how it must feel for anyone who isn't a straight white dude to see supposed superheroes acting like this. Or to be told over and over that this behavior is realistic. That's got to be so fucking disheartening. Fury then discusses tactics with Thor and Iron Man, but it doesn't matter because it's all going to go to shit anyway. Then Hawkeye says something to Fury that had me screaming and probably scaring my upstairs neighbor. On the last page, Hawkeye, smiling and reminiscing, says, A few years back, S.H.I.E.L.D. was just you, me, and a drinks tab trying to bring down the Soviet Union. Fury grins and acknowledges him, and all I can think about as they cock their guns and pose in their U.S. Army fatigues is how these drunken, juiced-up jerks went to war to create a world with more military bases than broken elevators. I know which one I'd choose. Greetings and salutations, faithful listeners in Listenerland. We hope you're keeping your spirits high and joining revolutionary organizations. We've recently held our Listenerland People's Party Congress, and our future couldn't be brighter. The chairperson was in the studio today, but was called away to cut the ribbon on the new ice cream factory. Centrally planned productive forces win the day again. Speaking of sweet things, we'd like to thank the following new patrons. Wally, Harry Diapers, Dr. Cucumber, Lauren Jones, and Ambud. We'd also like to thank the Red Gobbo for upgrading their Patreon level from odd bystander to lovable sidekick. And of course, massive appreciation goes out to our Destroyer of Empire level supporter, David Barajas. As well as the bonus episodes and their names read at the end of each episode, Destroyer of Empire-level supporters get a coveted seat on the council, giving them power to submit and vote on issues to be covered for full-length bonus episodes. You yourself can ensure that Collective Action Comics will be around for as long as possible by signing up for our Patreon as well at patreon.com slash collectiveactioncomics. Any of the four tiers will get your name on the radio. You can email the show at collectiveactioncomics at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at collectiveactioncomics or on Twitter at CAComicsPod. That's comics with an X. And as always, tune in next time for the next thrilling installment of Collective, Collective Action, Action Comics! Comics.